Well, good morning. Some of you may not have uh, recognized Lincoln Brewster um, or Michael W. Smith, but I imagine most of you recognize Billy Graham. <laughs> He's 94 this year. He is um, on the New York Times bestseller author's list. Um, and probably more than any Protestant ever, he has uh, preached the good news of Jesus Christ around the world. It's estimated that over 2.2 billion people have heard the gospel message from Billy Graham over the years that he's been preaching. Over 3 million people have made decisions to follow Christ because of him. I mean, truly, he is a, an inspiring man, and he has such a passion to see lives transformed for Jesus Christ. I'm told uh, about seven years ago, he was returning home from one of his evangelistic crusades, and he arrived in Charlotte, and uh, they sent a limo to pick him up. And uh, he approached the limo driver as he got out of the plane and said, you know, hey, I, I'm 87, and I've never driven a limo before. Would you mind if I drive home? <laughs> and the limo driver said, well, hey, why not? You know, it's insured. And um, so Billy got in the car, and the limo started driving away, and... Um, Little did he know that there was a, a rookie state trooper who had set up a speed trap down the highway a little bit, and he went by going 70 in a 55. So the trooper pulled out and came up and pulled him over real quickly, and as he came up to the window, Billy rolled his window down, and the, the state trooper was a little surprised at who he saw. And so he said, excuse me, sir, and he went back to his patrol car, and he called the supervisor right away. I said, sir, I know that, uh, you know, we're commissioned to enforce the law, but sometimes with very important people, we exercise a little um, courtesy to them. He says, I have just pulled over a very important person. And the supervisor said, who, who is it, the governor? He said, no, no, it's, he's more important than the governor. Well, well, who then? Is it the president? He said, no, he's more important than the president. I think, I think it must be Jesus because Billy Graham's a chauffeur. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I wish I was more like Billy Graham. I mean, haven't you always wanted to drive a limo before? <laughs> well, one of the problems I face this morning is that the topic we're going to talk about, all of you have an opinion about. And you all have emotional attachments to your opinion. No, we're not going to talk about the Spurs. Um, we're not going to talk about whether Johnny Manziel is going to really, you know, make it happen this year for A&M or if UT is going to be back in their playing season. We're not going to talk about Downton Abbey. Um, <laughs> it's a lot simpler than that. It's one word. It's evangelism. It's interesting because when we say that word evangelism, it's almost like the air gets sucked out of the room. <laughs> I'd rather talk about the Spurs, you know, some of you guys. It's interesting. And yet the Bible is so clear. In Matthew 28, in, in Mark chapter 16, Acts 1.8, that we are to go to all the nations and preach the gospel to all creation, that we are all called to be his witnesses here, near, and far. Any of us who've had our lives transformed by that grace that we found through Jesus Christ have been called to join him as messengers. You know, it's interesting that the foundational message and calling from God was not given to a group of pastors. It wasn't given to an organization. It wasn't even given to a few gifted men. Jesus entrusted the good news 
for all of the world to us, his disciples. He's called us to go and to share that news to a world that's lost its way. You know, while God may not need us to, to change a person's life, he has certainly called us to be a part of that process by entrusting us with his message. And we can no more deny our responsibility to share our faith in Christ than we can deny the change that we've seen in our own lives because of what that's done to us. And yet, and yet, when we read the Great Commission text, some of Christ's very last words to his disciples and to the church, I know that many of us start to cringe in our seats. When we start to talk about evangelism, some of us start thinking about excuses of why we need to leave early. <laughs> you know, no one's better excuses than kids. Um, you know, they, they know them all. They've got the cat to blame, the dog to blame, the brother or the sister, and if they can't blame any of them, who do they blame? Mom and dad. <laughs> you know, we get it next. Reminds me of a, a young girl who was um, supposed to clean her room and she didn't, and um, her mom asked her, how come you didn't clean your room? She said, well, mom, I, 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 I fell asleep. Oh, well, what were you dreaming about? Oh, mom, I was, I was dreaming about you. I was dreaming that you were cleaning my room. <laughs> it's, it's great to have someone to dream about, you know? Or that one young boy who uh, was kind of caught doing something he shouldn't do and asked, what, what's going on? And, and he said, I only do what the Cheerios tell me to do. <laughs> We've all got these excuses. Ken Nisbet wrote this poem. He says, I started on my homework, but my pen ran out of ink. My hamster ate my homework, my computer's on the blink. My mother ran my homework through the washer and the dryer. An airplane crashed into our house, my homework caught on fire. Tornadoes blew my notes away, volcanoes struck our town. My notes were taken hostage by an evil killer clown. I worked on these excuses so awful long, my teacher said, I think you'd find it easier just to do your homework instead. Sometimes I think those sound like the excuses that we come up with when we think of evangelism. You know, the Bible is filled with people with plenty of excuses as well. Eve blazed the serpent. Adam blamed Eve. Noah had a substance abuse problem. Abraham and Sarah, well, they were just too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah wasn't really the prettiest girl in town. Moses had a speech impediment. Gideon was afraid and he suffered from the woe is me complex. Jeremiah was too young. Jonah had this really bad body odor and he didn't really like people very much. John the Baptist, well, he was weird, he ate bugs. Martha, she worried about everything. Some of the disciples were too busy buying fields, others were raising longhorn cattle, and some were just busy having children and getting married. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Paul was kind of ugly and weak-kneed, and Lazarus, oh yeah, he was dead. What's your excuse? What keeps you from telling others about Jesus Christ? Why does sharing the gospel make all of us so uncomfortable, so much of it, the time it's so hard for us to make that a part of our regular lives? But here's the deal. I don't think God would have given us the Great Commission just to make us miserable. God would not have done that to us. If we're wrestling with that, if we've got guilt about sharing Christ or we don't think we've got the gift or we have all these other thoughts that make us miserable, maybe there's something wrong. Then I don't think our lack of evangelistic um, enthusiasm and intentionality and zeal is a result of our not caring about people 
And I don't think it's because we don't really care about honoring God. I think the reason is that we're hesitant to share our faith is that we've all bought into a lie. Some, that's different for some than it is for others. But I think our enemy is resolutely committed to getting us to exchange the truth for a lie in our lives. And we fall victim to that at times. And perhaps no more to the detriment of the kingdom than when it comes to evangelism. So this morning, I want to explore some of those lies, some of those myths that we've grown to accept and expose them to the truth of Scripture. And I want to look at Matthew's calling when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. We find that in Matthew chapter 9. This encounter between Jesus and Matthew, I think, exposes some of those lies. And for me, the approach of Jesus and the response of Matthew gives me some hope and some courage to step out in faith and be more intentional in sharing the good news of Christ. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus went out from there, he was in Capernaum, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Let's look at some of these myths. Evangelism myth number one. It assumes that some people, some people are just too sinful for God to forgive. I mean, the disciples must have been thinking this when they were walking along with Jesus. Do you, do you know who this guy is? I mean, really? He's, he's the tax collector. He's, he works for the IRS. I mean, he, he's one of us, but he, he's working for them. You see, tax collectors in the Gospels, they, they weren't the, the head honchos from Rome. Um, the tax collectors in the Gospels, they were um, Jews who had taken jobs as tax collectors for the Roman government. They were working for Washington, so to speak. Um, but they were despised in the culture because they were corrupt. They were tax farmers. They hung out with harlots and all sorts of other unclean and um, public sinners. They were seen as traitors. And so Matthew, a Jew, was living this sinful life and betrayed and cheated his own people. That's who Jesus went to. You know, today I think maybe it's, it's like the dope or the crack pusher in school. He's, he's a person. He's like one of us. He goes to school. But he, he doesn't care about the other people. He's happy to exploit them with disdain. He's a person beyond reach. Who's that in your life? Who do you know? When I say who's beyond reach to you, who comes to your mind? The person that's too far gone. Is it your boss, your neighbor, a family member? You know, you think, not this guy. Never, never in a million years. I, you know, I, I know I have people in my mind that I wrestle with that. He's just too, or she is just too, you know, Mary Magdalene, or the thief on the cross, or, you know, Paul, the persecutor, or maybe like you or I. But that's the lie. That's the lie. No one is too sinful for God to forgive. All people matter to God. You know, we are his creation, and he aches because we have been separated from him by our sinfulness. And what we see here is Jesus loving Matthew in spite of the sinful lifestyle that he had. You know, in a lot of ways, that was the heartbeat of Roger's message last week. The truth is, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should be saved and not perish. Later in Matthew 9, 13, Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
The truth is no one is too sinful for God to forgive. All people are within the reach of Christ's outstretched arms. And the degree of a person's sin does not a deterrent to the power of the gospel. Evangelism myth number two. No one is interested in knowing Christ anymore. I mean, they just don't respond to our invitation. No one cares. You know, the truth is that American culture to me has become much more complacent in recognizing our spiritual condition. I don't know if it's our wealth. I don't know if it's um, just some generational changes, if, if it's our prosperity, that we have so much we don't need God. But I think our culture has become much, much more complacent to that. And it grieves me that my father-in-law is one of those kind of people. I remember the first time I went to share my faith with him. We were sitting out on his patio in the back porch, and the sun was starting to set. And I thought we were alone. I thought, well, this is a good opportunity for me just to kind of tell my story to him and how Christ has made a difference in my life and, and, and how it could be different for him. And as I started explaining that, you know, maybe three or four minutes into that conversation, I could see his eyes were starting to glaze over. And so I, I tried a little bit more, and I kept on glazing over. And finally just said, you know, I can tell this is not interesting to you. He goes, yeah, let's, let's go in. Well, I learned a great lesson that day. Um, and it was basically don't try and share your testimony after a big steak dinner because <laughs> people aren't ready for it. But I, I still grieve for my father-in-law, and I still share with him. Just a couple months ago, he was with us and sat down again, had an opportunity to talk. And, and I said, you know, Dad, I, I know that... Um, you know, in the past, you've just not been real interested in this, but I, I just want you to know that God loves you, and I, and I want to be available for you to talk about that. I'm not interested. But the lie is that it says no one cares about knowing Christ. And, you know, the truth is some won't care, or at least on the outside they won't care. But we don't know who does and who doesn't care just from their outside appearances. We don't know what God's been doing in a person's life. You know, when our small evangelism team goes out door to door, when we go downtown and hand out flyers on the Riverwalk or to the UTSA football games, we don't know people's conditions when we go up and begin to talk with them. But by asking them a question, by engaging them in a conversation, it gives us an opportunity to get to hear some of their heart and hopefully to be able to share about Jesus Christ with them. In Matthew, as we read, as Jesus went out from here, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. From the outside, a sinner, an unclean person, an unclean Jew who had betrayed his nation. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up immediately and followed him. You see, on the outside, Matthew looked untouchable. But on the inside, God was at work in his life. The truth is, God fully knows us. Psalm 139 is a great passage. It says, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it all. God knows what's going on on the inside. Jesus compared evangelism to um, fishing. You know, and it's, it's not about whether the fish are biting or not that, that makes you a fisherman. You know, every fisherman knows whether they're biting, whether they're jumping into the fish, into the net, you're still a fisherman. Sometimes it just takes an invitation to follow. Tom Rainer wrote a book not too long ago called The, um, the Unchurched Next Door, and he said that in his surveys, 82% of people that don't currently go to a church, 
82% said they would be open to attending a church service if a friend of them, theirs, asked them. 82%. The sad truth is that seven out of 10 people that don't go to church have never, ever been invited. Folks, that's terrible. It gets worse. Only 2% of those of us who do go to church have ever invited a person to church in any given year. Sometimes it just takes an invitation. Now, I'm still praying for my father-in-law. I still want to see him come to know the Lord, but I realize that I can't make him believe. What God has called me to do is to share the truth with him, to love him, and to invite him to respond. So who do you know in your life that just doesn't seem interested at all? Maybe a place is to start praying for them and just continue to ask God to awaken their heart to the truth of the gospel. Evangelism myth number three. Maybe you've said this. I know I have at times. I'm not trained well enough. I mean, I, I just don't, I don't know all the answers. I'm afraid I'm going to get some, you know, really smart college kid who's just going to run over me with his questions. Um, what if I mess up? It's just too hard for me. Um, I'm just unsure of myself. In fact, you know, I'm no Billy Graham. You know, Billy Graham is the epitome of, of evangelism. And I'm not a Billy Graham. But you know, when we say that we're not like Billy Graham, when we say we're not Billy Graham, what we're really saying is that um, we don't have the gift of evangelism. We think of it in those terms. And what we're really saying to God is that even if I was trained, I don't have the gift because I'm not a Billy Graham. But we have believed a lie. You know, training is important, but it's not the training or the gift that brings a person to salvation in Christ. Who is it? It's God. Here's the problem. See, we confuse a per sometimes a person's confession of faith, that moment when they recognize their need for Christ and they confess him. We confuse that with the whole process of evangelism that God has been bringing that person through in their lives. And if we see evangelism only as that point of communicating the gospel truth and asking them to respond, then we miss the heart of God's calling for each one of us. See, the truth is God calls all of us, God calls all of us to be involved in evangelism. That's the Great Commission. He gifts some of us to be great communicators at the moment of decision. Billy Graham is a gifted communicator, and he's been gifted in those ways. But God is the Lord of the harvest. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who is waters is anything, but God causes the growth. Did you hear his repetition? God causes the growth. And I think that's the process of evangelism that points us all along those steps to Christ in the planting, in the sowing, in the watering, the cultivating, in the harvesting, and the reaping. You know, it's said that for most of us who've come to know Christ, we've had, uh, before we came to that point of decision in our life, probably 27 different encounters with the truth claims of Christ. 27 different times. Now, some people maybe hear it and relatively quickly, they're ready to make a decision. But I think a lot of people, there's a long process in their life. And evangelism begins with that first understanding or knowing of God, the knowledge of God, and extends all the way to that point where we surrender ourselves to him. 
So this point, this principle is extremely important because God has called all of us to be his messengers of the gospel, whether or not we're trained, whether or not we have the gift of evangelism, and whether or not we're there at that point of decision in a person's life. All of us have been called to be part of that process in evangelism. You see, God blesses faithfulness if we're engaged in the process. The results are up to him. And I think Matthew understood this. He was, you know, at first hand, he was an inviter. It says, then it happened that Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. And behold, the tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. You see, he didn't wait to be trained by Jesus. He didn't say, you know what, after we're done with this three-year process, I think I'll go back and talk to my friends. No, he, he took that. He was so excited. He, he couldn't wait to share with those who were his associates, with the other sinners in towns, with the people that he knew needed this good news. And so he invited them to his house. He shared what he found in Christ. He used what he had to introduce others to him, his food, his relationships, his story. And it was a powerful witness. How would it be here at Wayside? How would we be different if literally hundreds of us, if literally hundreds of us opened up our homes and invited our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members to come together to share some food, to have an outreach party like Matthew did. How would that change our community? How would that change Wayside Chapel? Well, friends, Billy Graham this year is gonna be turning 95. And in honor of his birthday, he's having one large evangelistic campaign throughout all of America. It's called My Hope America. And it's centered around the week of November 7th. And the, the simple idea is for us to begin praying for our friends and family and neighbors and to invite them to our homes on that week for a simple meal, for some snacks, to hear a 30-minute presentation, a special message from Billy Graham with some testimonies and some songs that will share the gospel message. And then to share briefly afterwards our story, two or three minutes, how has God changed my life? And invite people to respond. There's literally hundreds of thousands of Americans that are participating in that. I ask the question for us, what would our community look like differently if hundreds of us were willing to have a Matthew party this coming November? There's more information out in the foyer. We've got some brochures, some manuals. You can go online at waysidechapel.org and look at the outreach section for training events and things like that coming up. But the question for us is something that simple. And how would it change our community? How would our community be changed if we had 200 of our men? And maybe that's too few. What if 200 of our men joined the upcoming men's Bible study equipped for influence? It's really aimed at helping equip us, be ready and able to share our faith better, to be witnesses for Christ. What if 200 of us said, yeah, I want to do that. I want to be a part of that study because I want to see it make a difference in my life. How would that change our workplace? How would it change our community around us? You see, there's always, I think, more that we can learn. But I fear that in the church today, one of our challenges is we haven't put into practice the things that we already know. And nowhere to me is that more evident sometimes than evangelism. There's plenty of other excuses, plenty of other uh, ways that we kind of try and get ourselves out of it. You know, we say, I'm, I'm just not a perfect person. There's sin in my life. I can't share Christ. I'm a hypocrite or I'm too busy or I practice lifestyle evangelism. People can see how I live and, you know, that's, that's enough. That's how I show them or 
Or some people have told me I don't know any non-Christians. I want to share just one last uh, evangelism myth. And this is uh, that the critics are right. We believe somehow that the critics are right. Nobody likes to be criticized. Um, it's, but it's almost today like um, that it's a sport almost to label the gospel. And those of us who, who share Christ have been changed by him to be offensive and tolerant. Have you noticed that? You know, words like sin and hell and absolute truth, they're, they're degrading. We don't say those are no touchy subjects. They're kind of like, um, you know, sex, religion, and politics. You, you don't share those with guests. Our, our son um, always likes to joke how nobody, the reason we don't have a, a lot of guests in our house for dinner is because nobody wants to come over to our house because my wife is a health educator uh, and she's developing a, a sex education uh, pr program that they use in schools to reduce teen pregnancy. My son's a, a graduate of political science and I'm a pastor. So we've got the three non-touchable subjects. You know, imagine the conversations at our dinner table. I mean, we don't have a waiting list. You know what I mean? People are like, okay, I don't want to talk about those things. Um, Peter Dons writes in his book entitled Christians in the Movies that fundamentalist Christians have the distinction of having been almost uniformly portrayed negatively as charlatan preachers, unenlightened dupes, and more recently as mean-spirited hypocrites. That's, that's the word on the street about us. Who wants to be associated with that? I get it. I get it. You know, and I, I have to say, and I have a confession this morning, that I'm impacted by that. When I think of my own life, um, probably each one of these excuses I've used at different times before God. But when I get quiet and say, Lord, where is that passion and zeal that I want to have for you? I realize that I've been impacted by the political, you know, philosophical feelings of our country right now that criticize those of us who stand for Christ. And while I'm not silent, I realize that it has silenced me some. It's eaten away at my zeal and my, and my love for God to be able to share that great news. And I think to myself, how could I not just be overflowing with joy for the change that God has brought into my life? for the forgiveness that I've received, for uh, the, the peace that I have with them and the security of heaven in the future. How could I not be sharing that story? There's a, a woman in our church that I admire greatly that I see her all the time just telling people about Christ. And the other day she told me, she said, if I don't, the rocks will cry out. How could I not reflect that same passion in my own life? And I think it's because I've bought into that lie some that I'm not supposed to, that um, I've been told by the way I'm supposed to think. Too often I've allowed what people think of me based upon how I'm told they think of me to impact what I do for Christ. I've been intimidated by that popular message in our culture and it's wrongly affected me. It's, sometimes I feel like it's like uh, anesthesia, anesthesia of public opinion that kind of lulls us to sleep. It steals our passion to tell others about Jesus Christ. And you might be saying, well, you're the outreach and missions pastor. What are you doing? And I share it with you this morning because I know that if I wrestle with those things, that many of you probably wrestle with them as well. 
I need to hear the words of Paul who gets his priorities right when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. You know, Matthew knew what criticism was like. In his case, it came from the very religious people that should have known and welcomed the, the Messiah. They were the ones who were critical. When the Pharisees saw this, it says in verse 11, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? He was ridiculing them. This criticism was, was meant to shut down the witness, to silence it. The story is told of a woman who approached D.L. Moody with kind of an air of upsetness. And D.L. Moody is a great uh, 19th century evangelist. The woman said to Mr. Moody, I don't like the way you do evangelism. And he kindly just, you know, said, well, I'm sorry. Well, how do you do evangelism? And she said, I don't. He said, well, I, I like the way I'm doing it better than the way you're not doing it. <laughs> you know, sometimes we can get shut down by those criticisms. Thankfully, Daniel didn't. He was one of the guys in Billy Graham's chain of people that led him to the Lord. You see, the lie that I'm tempted to believe is that what people might think of me sharing the message of Christ is somehow more important than either their eternal destiny or my obedience to the clear mandate of God. But it isn't. That's a lie. The truth is the critics are not right. The truth is God cherishes people, and he longs for us to be in a right relationship with him. But people are spiritually lost. We have broken our relationship with God because of our sinfulness. We've rejected his authority, and we're eternally lost because of that. We need God's forgiveness. And God sent his son. He provided that way through him, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that we might be restored into a relationship with him, a right relationship, because Christ gave his life in exchange for us. But we have to decide. Do we continue to reject that rightful place of a loving God in our life, or do we accept his gift of forgiveness and grace? You see, Matthew understood that people were more valuable than his reputation. People are more valuable than our reputation. He was so happy about being forgiven that he invited all his friends. He was criticized, but there were great results. Jesus became the focus of the meeting. Sinners confessed their sins and received forgiveness. New believers met other followers of Christ and were encouraged. Matthew grew spiritually. And the sinners, or sorry, the critics, were the ones who were silenced. You see, the problem with all these myths is that unless we confront the lies that we've grown to believe, what we begin to do is we distort our understanding of evangelism to fit our excuse. We distort our view of understanding. And that's why we all have an emotional attachment to evangelism. We all have an opinion. I guess my question for each one of us today is how have you distorted your view of evangelism to give yourself an excuse with the Great Commission? The spiritually lost in our world remain, they remain in a very perilous place as long as we remain silent to the good news that God has given us. No, we're not Billy Graham but we've all been called to be God's messengers of this great message. So what's the solution for us? I think we need to commit to first exposing the lies that we've begun to believe. 
And that's all of our homework today. What are those ways that have slowly changed in your own heart and mind that you've kind of come up with a new view of evangelism to make it easier for yourself? And then claim God's truth to replace that lie with the truth. And then let me just encourage you, never give up trying. Never, ever give up trying to share the good news of Jesus' life and message. It is the hope of the world. Get some training. Put it into practice. Open your home. Friends, I want to say, yes, I wrestle with boldness. I wrestle with imperfect answers to hard questions, with feelings of inadequacy. I wrestle with a culture that considers the gospel offensive and how to do that in a way that is truth but not always offensive to people. I wrestle with my own shortcomings. But, but I refuse to give up. I refuse to let the lies run my life. And instead, I strive to live out the truth that God has called you and I to be his witnesses here, near, and far. Expose the lies. Claim God's truth. Never, never give up trying. As we prepare for communion this morning, I'm reminded just of how Billy Graham had such a very simple and clear presentation of the gospel message. He said, you matter to God. God loves you. But you have sinned, and that sin separates you from God. Jesus paid that price, though, for you to be forgiven if you're willing to accept what he's done for you on the cross. But you need to decide to turn from your ways, to accept Christ, and to follow him. So I asked this morning, where are you at today? If you've never made that decision to ask for forgiveness in your own life and ask Christ to come into your life, to be the Lord and leader of your life, to give yourself to him, I want to ask you to consider that this morning. You can do that in your own quiet way through prayer right now as we pray. But I want to ask... What in the world would keep you from doing that right now? Why not be willing to accept the responsibility of your own sin, ask forgiveness, and restore that right relationship with a wonderful, loving God? So as the elements are passed, I want you to hold them, and I want you to consider how Jesus accepts you just as you are. I want you to consider the price he has paid for our freedom, and I want you to think about what a mighty God he is to save. Gentlemen, come by.
on the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed, he was sharing a meal with his disciples and he took the bread as he did routinely and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Then after the meal, he took the cup and he said, uh, this is the cup of my blood, the new covenant. Drink this, and every time you do, remember me and what I've done for you. You join me in prayer as we close. God, it, it still humbles me, it still amazes me that you are willing to give your life in place of me, in place of us. That you are willing to lay it down so that we might have a way back to the Father, a way back to a right relationship with you. Knowing us perfectly, you went willfully. You gave your life at the cross so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life with you. And I thank you and we praise you this morning for that great, amazing gift. Lord, I just ask for your forgiveness too in the many ways and times where you have prompted me to do something, to say something, to take the initiative, and I have been still. I have been slow to respond. Father, give us, give me the courage to, to examine my life every day and to look for those places where I have bought into a lie, where I have replaced the good news of Christ, where I've replaced that zeal for evangelism with a fear or with a question or with a, a guilt or with any other thing. Lord, give me the courage to, to step boldly before you and to, to have that joy of being able to share that good news that you came to set us free. You came to forgive our sins, that you long for that relationship to be restored. Lord, I pray that you would raise within us a new movement of men and women that would be willing, Lord, to, to follow you and to, to speak the truth in love, that would invite our neighbors and our friends, that would take the initiative to engage in their lives, to pray for them regularly and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with this world that so desperately needs to hear. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for this morning and for the joy of coming together as your family and learning together in your word. We pray that you would go before us this week, preparing hearts and minds and giving us the courage and faith to follow you in each one of those relationships. We ask these things thankfully in Christ's glorious and risen name. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. If God has spoken to you this morning about your relationship with Christ, please come talk to one of our prayer counselors or to myself.